Well, Pastor Dan posed a question to us in his prayer. And it is the burden of our message today. How can we keep our young people from turning from God? How can we ensure that the next generation doesn't walk away from the faith? And in John Gray's sharing about Union Mission, he gave us the answer. We expose the word of God to their hearts. That's our hope. I I think that you will be able to conclude that yourself by the time we have worked through Psalm 78 together. That our, what chance do we have of, of causing the next generation to persevere? Well, first we have to admit that we have no chance. It is a work that God must do. And so we show the word of God to the next generation. Well, happy Mother's Day. You've already been greeted with that. Um, but I wanted a chance to say it to you. There are many mothers in this room who have given and loved sacrificially. Um, my mother-in-law, for one, and my wife, for another, and uh, many, many more. So my plan for this morning is to look at Psalm 78 and consider with you what God, through Asaph, calls us to do. I want to give you a few words of orientation, though, before we get into the psalm. First, I would warn you that this is a long psalm. In fact, with 72 verses, it's the second longest psalm in the whole Bible. Teens, do you know what the longest psalm in the Bible is? Someone said Psalm 119. That's right. It's actually the longest chapter in the whole Bible. Um, But Psalm 78 is the second longest psalm with 72 verses. And because of its length and the limitation of time on a Sunday morning, um, my comments on it will be necessarily brief. But they will be necessarily brief because I do not believe that I will have faithfully preached Psalm 78 unless you hear the text of Psalm 78. Um, So I'm going to make room for the word as we comment on it. Uh, So I intend to read through the entire psalm this morning, pausing to explain where necessary, to summarize sections, and to make a few pointed applications along the way. Finally, we'll take a few minutes at the end to consider uh, how we should respond to this as a church body together. So that would be one uh, point of orientation I give you. It's a long psalm, but it's also a psalm written by a man named Asaph. Asaph was the second most prolific composer of the psalms in the Psalter. Just to give you a relative comparison, um, David is attributed with typically around 75 psalms written. Um, Asaph then is second. He writes 12 psalms, Psalm 50, and then Psalm 73 through 83 in your Bible. 11 psalms right in a row um, in the middle of the Psalter. Asaph was the chief musician in King David's court. Right? He um, was in charge, as First Chronicles said, of the service of the song in the house of the Lord. He was a worship leader. Um, And a fun fact, he would lead music by playing the brass cymbals. (laughs) All right, so Pastor Ben, we can try that one time and see how that goes. I don't know how they led the music, um, but his job was to sound the cymbals. Asaph was a Levite as well, which means his whole life was centered around the worship of the Lord at the temple, the service of the Lord at the temple. He was also a prophet. Uh, We read that in 2 Chronicles 29. 
which means that when we read Psalm 78, in just a moment, you will be hearing the very words of God for his people. One third orienting point I give us, so it's a long psalm, it's a psalm by Asaph, but it's, a, it's also an unusual psalm in that it's a narrative psalm or a historical psalm. Um, it tells a story with a purpose, though. It's not just rehearsing facts. No history merely rehearses facts. Asaph is interested in his audience learning from this history. So the psalm is going to narrate the events of God and his people ranging from the plagues of Egypt through the crossing of the Red Sea, wandering in the wilderness, being established in the land, and finally the installation of King David in Jerusalem. So it's going to sound a lot like and feel a lot like Exodus and Numbers and Joshua and 1 Samuel, um, except it's going to be in kind of a poetic form. All right, so that's enough orientation for you to, to get us into the text, but I just want to make one other uh, quick comment regarding the psalm as it's Mother's Day. Um, while this text is not primarily about mothers, um, as you'll see, it directly applies to mothers in their God-given parental role to raise disciples, to raise children who fear the Lord. And I trust that on this day, that, that our nation has chosen to honor mothers, which I think is a beautiful thing, you will not only feel honored, but exhorted and encouraged. For the rest of us, there is so much in this psalm directly applicable to all who would follow God's commission to make disciples. So, with that, colonial brothers, sisters, as I hope you'll be able to see, we have to give diligent care to the discipleship of our next generation. We must tell them about the inglorious deeds of God's people and how to avoid them. We must by the same token, tell about the glorious deeds of Yahweh so that they may set their hope in them, so that they may set their hope in God. Let's hear God's word. Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast whose spirit was not faithful to God. The first eight verses of this psalm constitute an introduction to the history that is going to follow. Right, in verses 1 through 4, we have an invitation by Asaph for God's people to listen to a rehearsal of the glorious deeds of Yahweh. He will speak in parables and dark sayings, he says. In parables, in that the ensuing poem 
will have a comparative teaching value to it. Right? Do not be like Israel in their faithless rebellion against Yahweh. The dark sayings refers to riddles. Statements made that appear paradoxical. And we'll take mulling over to decipher. In the history of Israel that will follow, we will hear about two opposing things that will cause us to wonder, how can these things both be true at the same time? How can such a faithful God continue to show mercy? How can such a rebellious people continue in their sin? And hopefully in that tension, we will learn from this history. The final four verses of this introduction, verses 5 through 8, provide Asaph's reasoning from Scripture for why he feels compelled to compose such a psalm, why he feels compelled to make such a statement. In Deuteronomy, we just read uh, earlier an account of God establishing such a law, making Israel his people and him her God. Part of this covenant included the imperative to teach the future generations the law of the Lord. So there are two reasons that Asaph gives here why the future generation needs to be taught about God's words and his works. Okay, look in verse 7, real briefly, that they should set their hope in God. You see that in the beginning of verse 7. And then that they not forget the works of God, his commandments. And then a second reason in verse 8, that they should not be like their faithless ancestors. That stubborn, rebellious generation, generation whose heart was not steadfast, etc. One, that they would have set their hope in God, and two, that we would not be like their faithless ancestors. I would ask us, just real quick, have we determined, as a people who have gladly taken the name of Jesus and grouped together and banded together to pursue God's will, have we predetermined that whatever we do next, it's going to be in loyalty to God? Um, that's something, I'm talking about something that we don't wait for the moment to work through. It's something we, we bring to the decision. Whatever that next decision is, it's going to be loyal to God. Um, that is a steadfast heart. Or, or perhaps, though, our hearts are still, we take the name of Christianity, and yet we'll wait and see what the decision is. You know, whether or not um, it'll be worth it to keep going, uh, keep calling myself a Christian. Um, I would warn you, if that is our heart, if that's our heart in any area of life, then we stand side by side with a generation in Israel who is at risk of abandoning their God. If you'd uh, continue to read verse 9, the Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. It was an ancient Egyptian capital. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. 
and made the waters stand like a heap. Verse 14, I hope you're following along in the scripture. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. So at verse 9, a structure to the psalm begins that I would like to show you. It's a structure similar to a set of nesting dolls or um, quote levels in a chain email. Perhaps you're familiar with this. I've got a picture of a message that I sent to myself, to myself, to myself, to myself. Um, So you don't need to read the writing, and that's probably good because it's silly. Um, But you can see the color differences there. Have you ever seen this in your inbox? You, um, one initial message is sent, and then you reply to that message with another message. And it includes your reply in the reply. And you have this, like, crazy inception thing um, of messages nested within messages, nested with messages, these different levels. Well, Asaph intends to speak about the failure of the Ephraimites. Track with me here, please. But in doing so, he speaks about how they failed to remember their ancestors who did a bunch of things and forgot about how God delivered them from the power of Egypt. So Asaph is going to stop for a moment and expound on what God did in Egypt for Ephraim's ancestors, whom Ephraim should learn from, whom we should listen about and learn from. Pretty soon we have become several layers removed from the sin of the Ephraimites or the exhortation of Asaph. A quick reminder real quick, who are, who are the Ephraimites? Um, we haven't quite gotten to the place in Genesis where Jacob um, blesses Joseph's two sons, but Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. During his time in Egypt, he had these two sons. Near the end of his life, Jacob blesses them, and he calls them his own. And if you notice, there's not a tribe of Joseph on the map in ancient Israel. But instead, you see two different tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. These are Joseph's sons. So Ephraim is one of those. Well, the heart of Ephraim's failure is that they refused to remember the marvelous wonders of God. One commentator observes that in the Exodus, the Lord had triumphed over both nature and the nation of Egypt as he revealed his competence and his commitment to Israel. The deliverance from Egypt was such a colossal miracle that Israel should never have doubted him or forgotten him after that. Verse 13 begins the rehearsal of the glorious deeds of the Lord in contrast with the inglorious deeds of Ephraim's ancestors. So from here on, Asaph is going to focus on the deeds of Ephraim's ancestors. We'll just call them Israel. And he suggests that Ephraim should have taken to heart their own history, and then they would not have turned back as they did. Well, in dividing the sea, God delivered Israel from the oppression of her enemies. In the pillar of smoke and fire, God protected and led them through the wilderness. In splitting the rocks, he abundantly provided for their needs. Look at verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. 
they spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? As Ephraim should have taken note, their ancestors rebelled against God and tested him. They tested God by demanding that he prove himself trustworthy when he's already decisively done so. We're not too sure that this God of Moses is capable of providing food for us after he had just split seas and rocks to provide for them. This is how Satan tested our Lord Jesus in the wilderness. He tempted Jesus to demand that God prove himself, that he's capable of protecting him. And so what did he say? He said, throw yourself down from this temple. Don't the scriptures say the Lord will protect you? How did Jesus respond? You should not put the Lord your God to the test. Because Jesus took all of the evidence written in the law and in in his own walk with his father. And that was sufficient. God could provide for his needs. Well, what about us? Do we demand that God prove himself trustworthy before we're willing to rely on him for his provision, for his protection, or, or for his leading in our life? I think that is a question worthy of writing down and meditating on. How do we test God? Do we demand that he show himself more trustworthy before we'll entrust ourselves to him? Let's look at verse 21. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and he opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sands of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. To Israel's testing, the Lord responds in two ways. The Lord kindled a fire against Israel, the text reads. You could take that statement one of two ways. Either it's a metaphorical way of referring to a father's displeasure toward his children. right? Or it's a reference to a time when the Lord sent literal fire and killed some of Israel. Was there ever a time like that? There was. Yeah, it was in Numbers 11, verse 1 and 2. You can read about that. A time when the people complain against the Lord and the Lord sends fire to consume some of the outlying parts of the camp. Okay, that's one of the ways he responds. But look look at this other way he responds to their testing. The Lord mercifully grants their request. 
with the manna, he provided for them abundantly in quality and in quantity. With the further complaint for the meat, he didn't just give them what they needed. He allowed them instead what they craved. But in seeking to satisfy their craving, God put to death some of Israel's strongest. He allowed them their desire, which wanted something more than God. Look back at verse 22. Would you look at that real quick? Israel did not trust the Lord's ability to save. In spite of the miraculous Egyptian exodus, in spite of the incredible provision of water, they did not trust his saving power. Another commentator states that they did not consider him reliable or trustworthy and so did not act in faith. They did not feel secure in his abilities, even though they had seen his provisions. They believed in God, or they would not have murmured against him, but they were not able to take him seriously to make him their source of security. Do you believe in God? Well, good. So do the demons. Do you rely on his ability to provide for you, to protect you, to save you? Is he your source of security? Or is your source of security something else? Your bank account, your parents, your spouse, or your job? Verse 32 reads, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind, passes and comes not again. Unfortunately, here Israel goes another round. They continue in what appears to be unfazed and persistent disbelief and sin, to which the Lord responds in faithfulness to his covenant by disciplining his people. Israel's days vanishing like a breath and their years in terror fits well with what we know of God's judgment on those who believed the bad report of the ten spies. Spies whom Joshua spent, sent out to spy the land of Canaan. I'd like to read for you just briefly from Numbers 14. I'm just going to read from verse 32 through 35. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, the Lord speaks to Israel. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day. Listen to this. You shall bear your iniquity 40 years, 
and you shall know my displeasure. This was no wandering through the desert, enjoying life. It was wandering through the desert for 40 years, wasting away, knowing that your doom was sealed. The desert years were lived under the conscious sense of the wrath of God and with nothing to look forward to but death, one commentator writes. Then the Lord put to death those ten spies who gave the bad report. We would read in Numbers 14. And if we kept reading, as soon as the ten spies are put to death by a plague, and Moses informs Israel of that, of the fact that they've been grounded for 40 years, no video games, no playing outside. They seek to rush to obey what the Lord had originally asked. Okay, have you ever experienced this? Has your mother ever said to you something like, because you did not cut the grass like I asked you to, you, you can't go over to your friend's house tonight. And before her words finish, you're running out the door, trying to mow the lawn, and so that she would be lenient with her consequences. Right? You, you, did your heart really acknowledge your sin issue, though? Or was it just concerned about fixing the consequences? Well, it's evident that this is the way Israel was responding. You know, and though verses 34 through 35 look really good, like we should imitate that. Look in your Bibles at verse 34 and 35. It turns out, however, that it's another example of how not to respond to God. Their obedience was not from hearts that were determined to obey God no matter what. They were still gripped by something else, and that caused them to lie to the Most High God. But men and women, will you look at the Lord's response to this kind of behavior? Listen to verses 38 through 39 one more time. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. The Lord's response of faithfully and mercifully keeping his covenant was just as unfazed as Israel's rebellion. To paraphrase one commentator, Israel's survival at all was due only to the deep compassion and long patience of God. The Lord was not only moved by the plight of his messed up people, he cleaned up their mess time and time again, all the while keeping a cool spirit about their continual failure because he knew that they wouldn't last a minute if he gave them the justice that they deserved. In love, the Lord demonstrated that he was committed to saving his people, even though they proved over and over again that their greatest need of salvation was not from Egypt, it was from their own heart. Verse 40 reads, How often they rebelled in the wilderness against him and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. Although the Lord remembered Israel's weakness, Israel did not remember the Lord's power. Throughout Israel's years, they demonstrated that their rebellious heart was a chronic condition. Asaph sounds exasperated at this point, and we should too. We should feel his exasperation. How often do we rebel against the Lord 
by willingly choosing to pursue what God has forbidden. Or by seeking satisfaction in some good gift by God to the neglect of delighting in God himself. What follows in our chapter, in our Psalm 78, is a rehearsal of God's incredible power then to save through the exodus of Egypt. So you want to see a display of how powerful God is to save? Read the exodus. So this is what Asaph does. This continues another level of remembering. Like I said, another level, a quote level, or nesting doll. Ephraim failed to remember God's work among his ancestors and their failures. And Ephraim's ancestors failed to remember how God had delivered them and their ancestors from the foe. We're at level four now. Okay, look at what Ephraim's ancestors should have remembered. Verse 44, he turned their rivers to blood, speaking of the Egyptians, so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but he gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. So verses 44 through 51 not the entirety of what I just read, but 44 through 51 describe the never-before-witnessed-by-man might of the God of Israel. His unparalleled power to judge the wicked and save his people. Following that, in verses 52 through 55, we see his ability to follow through and do everything required to bring his people into the land that he had promised. The Lord guided Israel in safety to safety, like a gentle but firm shepherd. He even settled them into tents and homes that they didn't have to build. Yet even once they were established in God's promised land, their hearts were rebellious. Look at verse 56. Yet, I'm tired of hearing this. Are you tired of hearing this? Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God. And did not keep his commandments, his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers, like a twisted, deceitful bow. You try to fire, but it, it malfunctions. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. In an unsurprising turn of events, Ephraim's ancestors, Israel, respond to the Lord's wondrous redemption with treachery. Treachery describes unfaithfulness to the covenant. Right? Meaning the, the people had not kept faith. They had broken faith. They went back on their word with God. But the Lord responds to Israel's treachery in his usual covenant faithfulness to discipline his people when they go astray. 
So we continue to read in verse 59, when God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentations. Okay, now, commentators suggest that the historical background to this text is um, the, the, Philistine, the Philistines' battle with Israel in 1 Samuel 4. Now, as I've studied this passage, um, I think there's actually really clever, clear evidence um, to embrace that view, that, that we're, we're looking at the psalm and we should be reading um, 1 Samuel 4 in its background. And I just want to show you, I want to make four quick connections for you. Um, just have a little bit of fun here real quick. So keep your finger in Psalm 78, looking at verses 60 through 64, but then turn back to Samuel 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Would you do that with me? This will be brief. I just want to show you four connections here. First of all, in Psalm 78, verse 60, we hear that God forsakes his dwelling at Shiloh. And if you look in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. That's because the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is at the tabernacle in Shiloh. This is where God is dwelling. Okay? That seems to fit. Evidence number two I would point you to. The Ark of the Lord, is, which is seen as the emblem of God's power and his glory, is captured by the Philistines. Verse 61 in Psalm 78. And, de- and delivered his power to captivity. So what's power? Um, his glory. Okay, another way to say that. To the hand of the foe. What's going on here? Is, it, is, is God's glory his people? Is it something different? Look in 1 Samuel 4, 11. Look at verse 11 with me. And the ark of God was captured. Okay? God's glory and his power was captured. This says the ark of God was captured. Um, let's look down at verse 22. Okay? The ark of the Lord has been captured. Um, Eli learns that Hophni and Phinehas have been killed. And his wife learns about it. And she gives labor. Phinehas' labor. Phineas' wife labor goes into labor, and this is what she says. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So I think this 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 power and glory being delivered to the hand of the foe, to the power of captivity, is the ark of the Lord. I think this is what's going on in First Samuel 4. Okay, finally, Israel's people, or two more, Israel's people were slain by the sword. We read that in Psalm 62. He gave his people over to the sword. Invented his wrath on his heritage. And in 1 Samuel 4, verse 10, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And lastly, Psalm 78, verse 64, describes priests falling by the sword. Now, it's unusual for priests to go to battle. But here in 1 Samuel 4, we learn of two priests who took the ark of the Lord into battle. 
and were slain by the sword, Hophni and Phinehas. So the Lord responds then to Israel's unsurprising but paradoxical chronic rebellion by rejecting the northern tribe of Ephraim. Right? He rejects Shiloh. Let me show you a quick slide here to give you a visual. Um, so we're familiar with Jerusalem, the, the capital city of, Israel, of Judah. You know, in the southern kingdom here, and this would be the center of the worship of the Lord, the temple would eventually be built there. Um, but before the monarchy, when Joshua is still, you know, leading in the tribe of Ephraim, Shiloh was actually the location where the tabernacle was set up and the center of worship was. And so what the psalm is, is recounting is there was a point when God decided to reject Ephraim and the place of his dwelling in Shiloh, and eventually we'll find out at the end of the psalm that he will have relocated it to Jerusalem under a different tribe and under a different leadership. So in fact, Asaph says as much. Look at verse 65. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph, Joseph's son, Ephraim. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. But he chose instead the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing news, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he, David, shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So in a final show of merciful turn of events, are we surprised at God by this? Right? We should be having that response. Are we surprised that this keeps happening? But why does this keep happening? The Lord chooses a human shepherd from the tribe of Judah to shepherd his people, delivering Israel from the Philistines and securing a united monarchy. So after rejecting Israel, he again turns and shows mercy by giving them a good leader. To our knowledge at this point in Scripture, in the psalm. This has brought us all the way back to the present time of Asaph, the psalm's author. So now that we've read through, we've worked through the psalm, the entire psalm, and explained some details um, and passed over others, I'd like for us to consider how we could respond to this psalm as a church. Okay, So I'm, I want to take us through a few responses. Um, I've got five for us. It'll be brief. But the first one I would encourage us to consider is that God will never give up on your salvation. Do you see that from Psalm 78? God will tenaciously see his salvation through. But do you also see in this psalm that you must never grow complacent in your salvation? I would like to read for you an extended quotation from one of the commentators that I really enjoyed reading this week. His name is Alec Motyer. Alex Motyer. God's point of view can be summed up in one word. God's point of view can be summed up in one word. Perseverance. He never gives up. At Passover, he put his hand to the plow of our redemption and refused to turn back. There is a rhythm to history. When redemption is followed by disobedience, this incurs wrath. But wrath does not have the last word. 
Our misery, even when it is caused by his righteous anger, brings misery in heaven. Psalm 78 taught us. It grieved him. And compassion prompts mercy. For our comfort and reassurance, then, we may take it for granted. God never gives up. He is determined on our salvation with eternal security, and he will see to it amid all the fluctuations and riddles of daily experience. Yes, we can take comfort, but we must not lapse into complacency. For as Asaph saw, as Asaph saw history from the human viewpoint, the key factors were a sharply focused mind and a keenly retentive memory as the prerequisites to an obedient life. So, brothers and sisters, take courage. God will never give up, and you must never grow complacent in your salvation. Secondly, we must tell the next generation about God's marvelous ability to save. For those among us who have come from a Christian heritage, do you know of an event, can you think of an event in your father or mother's life in which God himself, God showed himself to be powerful and faithful to them? One or two, think about that. Okay, what about, has your grandfather or your grandmother ever told you about a time when God worked in their life and showed them how merciful and compassionate he was. Have you ever gotten to hear anything like that? Have you told your children about those events? I hope this maybe prompts a few things that maybe you could share with your children even today around the dinner table. Thirdly, corresponding with this, we must warn the next generation about our tendency to disbelieve and forget God. What are you doing to ensure that you do not forget the marvelous works that God has done in your life and the lives of those who have gone before you? What's your strategy? Do you have a strategy for never forgetting the works of God? What are you doing to ensure that the next generation will not forget have you ever considered using examples of your own failures? See, in our culture, we like to cover up failure. We like to never speak out of it again and move on. But I would exhort you, brothers and sisters, that we have a Bible filled with failures. That we must never forget what about your own personal life, though? Do you ever take advantage of those things that you've been through and use an opportunity to come alongside your child or a friend? Look at how God patient was, how patient God was. Look at how long-suffering God was in my life. Yes, I, I messed up. But see how God was faithful and merciful to forgive. Do not miss those opportunities, please. Don't only share the, the brave, good stories. Israel's forgetting God's work was an issue not merely of one generation forgetting to tell or forgetting about God's works, but it was one generation forgetting to pass on to the next generation what God had done. I'd like to summarize um, as um, our, one of our last application points. Uh, yeah, as, as our last application, it has two parts. Um, what this psalm teaches us about God. Now, the way I um, work with our teens and the youth group is 
I'm trying to teach them how to, you know, study the Bible carefully and then how to apply it appropriately to their lives. And there are several questions we can ask to help make, you know, wise applications. But I, I try to tell them frequently that you will never go wrong if you ask this question of a text. What does this teach me about God? You, you, you never, you never, you're never looking for the wrong thing. If you ask that question of a text in scripture, why? Because scripture is about God, about who he is. And so then how, how should we respond to what you just learned about God? So what I'd like to do with our um, last remaining time is just work through two questions. What does the text teach us about God? And what does the text teach us about ourselves? I'm going to start with the, the ourselves first so that we can end with what it teaches us about God. So first five things that we should learn from this text about God and that we should teach the next generation about ourselves. So mothers, parents, adults, teens, what should we teach the next generation about ourselves? We can forget the works of God. We as people are fallible. We do this sometimes intentionally through laziness, through procrastination, and we can do this unintentionally. I would go through the psalm and, and show you every one of the passages where I'm getting these ideas, but I think you'll be able to see it yourself. And for the sake of time, we need to wrap things up. Second, we are often stubborn and rebellious. This is our bent, our tendency. We could be persistent in our sin. This should not surprise us when we see someone so blinded in their sin and calls themselves a believer. This should not surprise us at all. This should actually just remind us, this is what my heart can do. And this is how much I need the grace of Jesus. We often test God. We demand that he demonstrate that he's trustworthy before we rely on him when he has already demonstrated that he is trustworthy. And he's done so most decisively in the new exodus of Jesus' death on the cross and in deliverance from sin. What more do you need? What more do I need to see that God can be trusted? We often fail to trust God's power, that he has the, the actual ability to do what he says he can do. And finally, we can be duplicitous and hypocritical with God. Obeying God outwardly to avoid inconvenience or consequences, but inwardly prepared to satisfy our desires at the very next opportunity. This is what we, this is what we can do as humans. This is what we are possible of doing. This is what our hearts are capable of. So we need to warn the next generation about this. Don't be deceived by what the culture tells you. Instead, take it from God's word. So lastly, mothers, parents, teens, adults, what should we teach the next generation about God? God is powerful to deliver. He has everything required to do everything you need to be delivered from your sin and live for him. God is careful to provide and protect Just thinking back through the psalm. Look all the protection and the provision. What about in your life? 
Has he already modeled that? Has he already demonstrated that to you? God is faithful to discipline. I find this point so encouraging. I am so grateful that God will not allow me to go far before he intercepts my path with another believer who says, don't go there. Or he allows me to start experiencing the consequences of my sin because he wants me to stop. You don't want where this goes. This is a comfort to me. I hope it is to you too. God is compassionate. He's touched by our grief and our sorrow, this psalm taught us. He's touched by the fact that we're hard-headed sometimes. You stubborn people, how long, how many times do I have to say this? That touches our God. And he's moved by that to show compassion and mercy. God is long-suffering. I don't need to say a word about that. Our God is so patient to work with us. And finally, he's merciful. He does not give us what we deserve. So in closing, um, I just want to share one brief story about my own mother. Um, My mother led me to the Lord. I was four years old, and I had the flu, and uh, I was kept at home. My family was off at a conference, and in my little mind, I thought I was dying because, you know, I'm throwing up my innards, and I'm four, and it was just miserable. And I remember becoming keenly aware of the fact that I could go to hell. I I don't want to go to hell. Um, And the Lord used that fear of the punishment of my sin, the fear of consequences of my sin, to push me to find, like, what does God say? What can I do? And my mom, she was a faithful, faithful Sunday school teacher. She's been teaching for decades and decades. You know what she did? She exposed me to the word of God and talked to me about the wondrous works of Yahweh. And by God's grace, I believed. And so when I read this psalm, I say, thank you, God, so much. Thank you, God, so much for your compassion on me, your mercy on me. For giving me a mother who is pursuing you and is committed to passing on to me what God has done. And to warn me how, how God's people tend to fail. So may God give us grace to respond to Psalm 78. However the Spirit works, maybe in some of these ways, um, that is his pleasure. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And I pray that as we've exposed it to our own hearts, um, we would truly rest in the fact that it will do work now. Give our hearts good ground. Make our hearts good ground that receives the seed of the word so that it can grow up and bear fruit. Help us, Lord, to make disciples of the next generation here in Colonial Baptist Church. Bless the youth ministry. Bless the children's ministry, Lord, as we seek to expose the Word of God to the hearts of children and teens and the rest of us as we seek to obey this commission to make disciples of all people. In Jesus' name, amen.